Section 24 of Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 2, by Washington Irving. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 2, by Washington Irving. Book 6, Chapter 7. Like as a mighty alderman, when at a corporation feast the first spoonful of turtle soup salutes his palate, feels his appetite but tenfold quickened, and redoubles his vigorous attacks upon the tureen, while his projecting eyes rolled greedily round, devouring everything at table, so did the meddlesome Peter Stuyvesant feel that hunger for martial glory which raged within his bowels, inflamed by the capture of Fort Casimir, and nothing could allay it but the conquest of all New Sweden. No sooner, therefore, had he secured his conquest, than he stumped resolutely on, flushed with success, to gather fresh laurels at Fort Christina. Note. At present a flourishing town called Christiana or Christine, about thirty-seven miles from Philadelphia, on the post-road to Baltimore. End note. This was the grand Swedish post, established on a small river, or, as it is improperly termed, creek, of the same name. And here that crafty governor, Jan Rising, lay grimly drawn up like a grey-bearded spider in the citadel of his web. But before we hurry into the direful scenes which must attend the meeting of two such potent chieftains, it is advisable to pause for a moment and hold a kind of warlike council. Battles should not be rushed into precipitately by the historian and his readers any more than by the general and his soldiers. The great commanders of antiquity never engaged the enemy without previously preparing the minds of their followers by animating harangues spiriting them up to heroic deeds, assuring them of the protection of the gods, and inspiring them with a confidence in the prowess of their leaders. So the historian should awaken the attention and enlist the passions of his readers, and having set them all on fire with the importance of his subject, he should put himself at their head, flourish his pen, and lead them on to the thickest of the fight. An illustrious example of this rule may be seen in that mirror of historians, the immortal Thucydides. Having arrived at the breaking out of the Peloponnesian War, one of his commentators observes that he sounds that charge in all the disposition and spirit of Homer. He catalogues the allies on both sides. He awakens our expectations and fast engages our attention all mankind are concerned in the important point now going to be decided endeavors are made to disclose futurity heaven itself is interested in the dispute the earth totters and nature seems to labor with the great event this is his solemn sublime manner of setting out thus he magnifies a war between two as rapin styles them petty states and thus artfully he supports a little subject by treating it in a great and noble method. In like manner, having conducted my readers into the very teeth of peril, having followed the adventurous Peter and his band into foreign regions, 
surrounded by foes and stunned by the horrid din of arms at this important moment while darkness and doubt hang o'er each coming chapter i hold it meet to harangue them and prepare them for the events that are to follow and here i would premise one great advantage which as historian i possess over my reader and this it is that though i cannot save the life of my favorite hero nor absolutely contradict the event of a battle both of which liberties though often taken by the french writers of the present reign i hold to be utterly unworthy of a scrupulous historian yet i can now and then make him bestow on his enemy a sturdy back-stroke sufficient to fell a giant though in honest truth he may never have done anything of the kind or i can drive his antagonist clear round and round the field as did homer make that fine fellow hector scamper like a poltroon round the walls of troy for which if ever they have encountered one another in the elysian fields i'll warrant the prince of poets has had to make the most humble apology i am aware that many conscientious readers will be ready to cry out foul play whenever i render a little assistance to my hero but i consider it one of those privileges exercised by historians of all ages and one which has never been disputed an historian is in fact as it were bound in honour to stand by his hero the fame of the latter is entrusted to his hands and it is his duty to do the best by it he can never was there a general an admiral or any other commander who in giving an account of any battle he had fought did not sorely belabour the enemy and i have no doubt that had my heroes written the history of their own achievements they would have dealt much harder blows than any that i shall recount standing forth therefore as the guardian of their fame it behooves me to do them the same justice they would have done themselves and if i happen to be a little hard upon the swedes i give free leave to any of their descendants who may write a history of the state of delaware to take fair retaliation and belabor peter stuyvesant as hard as they please therefore stand by for broken heads and bloody noses my pen hath long itched for a battle siege after siege have i carried on without blows or bloodshed but now i have at length got a chance and i vow to heaven and saint nicholas that let the chronicles of the times say what they please neither sallust livy tacitus polybius nor any other historian did ever record a fiercer fight than that in which my valiant chieftains are now about to engage and you o most excellent readers whom for your faithful adherence i could cherish in the warmest corner of my heart be not uneasy trust the fate of our favorite stuyvesant with me for by the rude come what may i'll stick by hard copic pete to the last i'll make him drive about these losels vile as did the renowned launcelot of the lake a herd of recreant cornish knights and if he does fall let me never draw my pen to fight another battle in behalf of a brave man if i don't make these lubberly swedes pay for it no sooner had peter stuyvesant arrived before fort christina then he proceeded without delay to entrench himself and immediately on running his first parallel dispatched anthony van corlear to summon the fortress to surrender van corlear was received with all due formality hoodwinked at the portal 
and conducted through a pestiferous smell of salt fish and onions to the citadel a substantial hut built of pine logs his eyes were here uncovered and he found himself in the august presence of governor rising this chieftain as i have before noted was a very giantly man and was clad in a coarse blue coat strapped round the waist with a leathern belt which caused the enormous skirts and pockets to set off with a very warlike sweep his ponderous legs were cased in a pair of foxy-coloured jack-boots and he was straddling in the attitude of the colossus of rhodes before a bit of broken looking-glass shaving himself with a villainously dull razor this afflicting operation caused him to make a series of horrible grimaces which heightened exceedingly the grisly terrors of his visage on antony van corlear's being announced the grim commander paused for a moment in the midst of one of his most hard-favoured contortions and after eyeing him askance over the shoulder with a kind of snarling grin on his countenance resumed his labours at the glass this iron harvest being reaped he turned once more to the trumpeter and demanded the purport of his errand antony van corlear delivered in a few words being a kind of shorthand speaker a long message from his excellency recounting the whole history of the province with a recapitulation of grievances and enumeration of claims and concluding with a peremptory demand of instant surrender which done he turned aside took his nose between his thumb and finger and blew a tremendous blast not unlike the flourish of a trumpet of defiance which it had doubtless learned from a long and intimate neighbourhood with that melodious instrument governor rising heard him through trumpet and all but with infinite impatience leaning at times as was his usual custom on the pommel of his sword and at times twirling a huge steel watch-chain or snapping his fingers van corlear having finished he bluntly replied that peter stuyvesant and his summons might go to the d whither he hoped to send him and his crew of ragamuffins before supper-time then unsheathing his brass-hilted sword and throwing away the scabbard forgad quoth he but i will not sheath thee again until i make a scabbard of the smoke-dried leathern hide of this runagate dutchman then having flung this fierce defiance in the teeth of his adversary by the lips of his messenger the latter was reconducted to the portal with all the ceremonious civility due to the trumpeter squire and ambassador of so great a commander and being again unblinded was courteously dismissed with a tweak of the nose to assist him in recollecting his message no sooner did the gallant peter receive this insolent reply than he let fly a tremendous volley of red-hot execrations which would infallibly have battered down the fortifications and blown up the powder magazine about the ears of the fiery swede had not the ramparts been remarkably strong and the magazine bomb-proof perceiving that the works withstood this terrific blast and that it was utterly impossible as it really was in those unphilosophic days to carry on a war with words he ordered his merry men all to prepare for an immediate assault but here a strange murmur broke out among his troops beginning with the tribe of the van brummels those valiant trenchermen of the bronx and spreading from man to man accompanied with certain mutinous looks and discontented murmurs 
For once in his life, and only for once, did the great Peter turn pale, for he verily thought his warriors were going to falter in this hour of perilous trial, and thus to tarnish forever the fame of the province of New Netherlands. But soon did he discover, to his great joy, that in this suspicion he deeply wronged this most undaunted army. For the cause of this agitation and uneasiness simply was that the hour of dinner was at hand, and it would almost have broken the hearts of these regular Dutch warriors to have broken in upon the invariable routine of their habits. Besides, it was an established rule among our ancestors always to fight upon a full stomach, and to this may be doubtless attributed the circumstance that they came to be so renowned in arms. And now are the hearty men of the Manhattoes, and their no less hearty comrades, all lustily engaged under the trees, buffeting stoutly with the contents of their wallets, and taking such affectionate embraces of their canteens and pottles, as though they verily believed they were to be the last. And, as I foresee, we shall have hot work in a page or two. I advise my readers to do the same, for which purpose I will bring this chapter to a close, giving them my word of honor that no advantage shall be taken of this armistice, to surprise or in any wise molest the honest Nederlanders while at their vigorous repast. End of section 24